invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, as we remember from last week, James was writing to a group of Jewish believers who were suffering at the hand of their employers. They were rich landowners who were holding back their wages, and they were no doubt exploring the poor in other ways as well. In verses 1 through 6 that Rich preached from last week, James strongly condemns the rich for this injustice. And he tells them there's going to be consequences. It is not going to end well for you. Let's remind ourselves of this following along, starting at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And notice the first word of verse 7. Therefore. Therefore. That's how James begins this next section. And, And what that means is that whatever he's going to say is directly connected to what he just said. So we can look at verses 7 through 12 as the application or as the so what of verses 1 through 6. James turns his attention here from the rich to the poor Christians who were suffering. And he proceeds to encourage them to endure. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you do not fall under condemnation. It seems that James's primary concern in these verses is that the believers endure in their suffering, that they remain steadfast, that they hold on to their hope, even though their suffering may really, really, really cause them to want to let go. And he doesn't just want them to endure. He wants them to do so with patience. And as he encourages them to respond to their suffering with patient endurance, he offers four points of counsel. He says, anticipate the Lord's return. 
Don't grumble against each other. Look at the prophets and Job. Don't swear or take oaths. I don't think many of us here this morning are being oppressed by wicked rich people like these Jewish believers were. But as Christians, we all suffer. It can't be avoided. Scripture tells us this in lots of places. Here's two. Acts 14.2 We must go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2 and 3, Paul says, We were destined for trials. I know that some of you here this morning are currently in the midst of intense suffering. Others of you are not. Some of you have endured a difficult trial in the past. For others, it it might be right around the corner or several years down the road. But to one degree or another, we all will suffer. Whether it's physical disease or chronic pain, the loss of a loved one, unemployment or a job that you just really, really don't like, the lack of a spouse or an unbelieving spouse, or a spouse that's really, really difficult to live with. Perhaps it's a wayward child, or any other physical or relational problem that you really, really wish would go away. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is for you, our suffering is those things, big or small, that we would change. We would change if only we could. It's that which tests our faith in God's goodness and love. Suffering is hard. And in the midst of our suffering, we are often tempted in various ways to just give up and to let go. And with that temptation comes the temptation to be impatient. It's not natural. It is not easy to endure our suffering with patience. But this is our call. This is what we're called to, and this is what we must pursue. What does it look like? What does patient endurance in suffering look like? Well, in the counsel from James in our text this morning, I think that we see four marks of patient endurance. First, it anticipates Christ's return. Second, it does not grumble against others. Third, it looks to the example of others. And fourth, it always speaks the truth. We'll look at each of these together. First, Patient endurance and suffering anticipates Christ's return. We see this in verses 7 and 8. The coming of the Lord here in verse 7 refers to Jesus' return to earth. It's what we've been singing about. The, The idea is that of arrival, of presence. He calls them to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And, And that word until... We often think of it in terms of time, but it isn't just referring to a time period. It has the idea of goal. 
So being in the presence of Christ is the ultimate goal for all Christians. In fact, it's what we were created for. The return of Christ is referenced 300 times in the New Testament. That's once every 13 verses. One has said that no other aspect of Christ has been stated more frequently or more emphatically than the return of Christ. So His return clearly is a main thing in Scripture, and it's also a plain thing. But even though that's the case, there are a lot of different views regarding the timing of His return and even the territory involved. In fact, there's enough views to create confusion and even conflict among people who really believe it's going to happen and really, really believe it's important. I'm not going to go there this morning, all right? Without getting into any of that, I just want to mention three things that we can be certain about. There probably are more, but here's three. First, Christ's return, the timing of his return is secret. We see this in the Gospel of Mark. No one except the Father knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels, not even Jesus himself. Second, Christ's return will be sudden. Matthew 24 describes his return like lightning in the sky. Unexpected and sudden. With that, I think, is the idea of imminence. His return could happen at any time. James tells us in verse 8 that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or other translations use the word near. His coming is near. He's not talking here, I don't think, in terms of time. Like it's getting close or it's only a few months or few years away. Of course, there's a sense in which that's true, but, but I think the coming of the Lord is at hand. When he says the coming of the Lord is at hand, I think it means that as far as we know, it could happen any day. It's at hand. That means it could happen at any time. His return is imminent, and it will come suddenly. And then third, we know Christ's return will be spectacular. There was, there was a bit of doubt around his first coming, right? There was men who knew, and that's not going to be the case with his second coming. There will be no doubt. His return will be conspicuous. It'll be universal. It'll be instantaneous. One said it this way, it will transcend all the events in space and time that have ever taken place in space and time. So because Jesus is coming, James tells his readers to be patient. And he gives us here the example of a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? This example of a farmer, his readers would have connected with very, very well. In fact, a lot of them worked for farmers. There's only so much a farmer can do to bring about his desired harvest. He ultimately, he works his tail off, but ultimately, he is not in control. He has to wait for the rain to come. And he has to wait for the land to produce the crops. The early rain here would come in October, and it would prepare the ground for planting. And the late rain would come in the spring, usually March or April, and that would ensure a good harvest. Now, every reference in the Old Testament to this early and late rain 
was in the context of affirming the faithfulness of the Lord. James' readers likely would have caught that. And they would have been strengthened in their confidence of Christ's coming. They would have known it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. So as the farmer waits for God to send rain, we wait for God to send His Son. As the farmer's heart is fixed on the harvest, our heart is fixed on the returning Lord. How is it then that anticipating Christ's return helps us to patiently endure suffering? There's a connection here. Let's think about it for a moment. Three suggestions, there are no doubt or more. But first, anticipating Christ's return keeps us from taking things into our own hands. Perhaps the Jewish Christians here that James is writing to were thinking, man, this injustice is awful. God has just got to do something about it, and he's got to do it now. If he's not going to do it, then maybe I should. James says, be patient. Christ is coming. He's going to take care of it. Second, anticipating Christ's return helps us endure patiently insofar as it gives us hope. Thinking of Christ's return reminds us that our suffering will end as bad as it may be. It will end. It's temporary. And third, gives us perspective. Thinking of Christ's return reminds us that our suffering is worth it. As Paul said so well in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And in Romans 8, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So this perspective, thinking of what is to come in the presence of Christ, helps us patiently endure our suffering. So I wonder this morning, as you suffer, do you anticipate Christ's return? Do you think in your difficulty of being in the presence of Christ? The reality is that the best our world offers is only but a shadow of what heaven will be like. And the best thing about heaven is being in the presence of our King, the returning Jesus Christ. So in our suffering, we must anticipate Christ's return. This right now, this right now is not all there is. A life much longer, much fuller, and much more glorious awaits. We have a Savior who saved us from our sin, and one day will fulfill our every desire and eliminate all suffering. Longing for the day when we will be in His presence will help us patiently endure our suffering now. Perhaps you were here this morning and you've never really thought about King Jesus 
coming to earth? You've never thought about Jesus coming back. And I wonder, does this thought generate within your heart comfort? Or does it generate fear? Will Jesus return as your Savior, welcoming you into His presence? Or your judge, condemning you to eternal separation from Him? We all deserve for Him to condemn us because we are all sinners who deserve His wrath. But God loves us so much that He sent Jesus to earth the first time to live the life we could never live and die the death for sin that we all deserve. God placed His judgment for sin on Christ, on the cross. Three days later, He raised Him from the dead. Jesus then ascended to the Father's right hand and there He awaits His return. So you must respond to this good news of salvation in Christ with repentance and faith. And if you do, you will experience God's mercy, not His wrath. So are you prepared to meet Jesus? There is nothing, nothing, nothing more important in your life than being prepared for His return. If you have any questions about that or if you'd like to talk about that further, please let us know. Let me know. Let someone know before you leave and we would love to meet with you and talk about this some more. So patiently enduring suffering is first marked by anticipating Christ's return. Second, patient endurance in, in suffering is it doesn't grumble against others. The, the second mark is that it does not grumble against others. We see this in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As we have seen in our study of James up to this point, genuine faith shows itself in how we live. And that includes how we talk. One of the marks of true religion is the control of the tongue. And as we know primarily from chapter 3, James has a lot to say about the danger of our tongue. And here he highlights the temptation to grumble against one another in our suffering. This word grumble here is the idea in the Old Testament of groaning or sighing. It's an expression of frustration from God's people when they are oppressed. Don't think here the problem necessarily is with grumbling itself, but the fact is, the problem is that it's against other people. You see, when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances that often accompany suffering, it becomes easy to grumble against others. We might grumble against those who have wronged us. Perhaps we might vent the pressure from a stressful situation at work or ill health on our very close family or friends. We may grumble against those who are suffering less than us. Why isn't he going through this? She deserves to be suffering like I am, and so on. And as we grumble against others, think about this, as we do this, as we grumble against others, I think it's pretty apparent to see that we're not enduring with patience. 
the return of Christ provides much hope. But we see here that it also brings a certain level of sobriety. Because He will come not only as Savior, but also as judge. And this should affect how we talk to each other. Got a question for the children and the teens. All right. Here's your question, all right? Does the knowledge that your mom or dad is standing outside your bedroom door and could walk into your room at any time, does knowing that affect what you say and what you do in your room? I'm thinking it probably does. Jesus could show up at any time. James says he is standing at the door. And he will judge every idle word. So James says, in your suffering, don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another. So whenever we're tempted to grumble against others in our suffering, it should be a warning sign to us that we're not enduring. We're not enduring with patience. And as we think about this, the solution here is not to just try really, really hard not to grumble. I'm just going to bite my tongue. It might be good, but, but it really isn't going to be enough. We must always remember that our mouth is an overflow of our heart. So the only way to cure complaining and grumbling against others in our suffering is to see that it comes from a heart that is impatient. And impatience comes from a heart of unbelief and a lack of trust in God. So that's what we must address. We must repent of our lack of faith and impatience. And by God's grace, as we focus on our hearts, we won't grumble against one another. And as we consider this temptation to turn on others in our suffering, I think it's a good place to remember how much we need each other in our suffering. We can naturally tend to think that, you know what, I think it's just best that I experience this suffering on my own. I, I don't want to burden her with this. She has enough trials to deal with. Or, you know, I brought this on myself and I'm going to be fine just handling it by myself. Those are some things that, that can come to our mind, but we've got to remember that God has called us to bear one another's burdens. I think He gave us that command because He knows that we need each other perhaps most of all in our suffering. So we must not turn on others in our suffering, but we must also not turn away from others in our suffering. I know it may be hard. It certainly requires a level of humility. But by God's grace, may we be a people who turn to each other in our times of suffering. Patient endurance and suffering anticipates Christ's return. It doesn't grumble against others. And third, it looks to the example of others. We see this in verses 10 and 11. James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets 
who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We want to talk about suffering. Just take a look at the prophets in Job. Acts 7, Luke wrote that which of the prophets did your father not persecute? A quick list, just to refresh our memories and remind us of this. Moses had to put up with the stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites who left Egypt. Isaiah was probably sawn in two. David was hunted in the mountains like a rabbit by Saul. Elijah faced hostility from an evil king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Jeremiah was arrested as a traitor. He was thrown in a well to die. Suffering brought so much sorrow to Jeremiah that he became known as the weeping prophet. Ezekiel endured the death of his wife during his ministry. Daniel was torn from his homeland as a boy. He was later thrown into a lion's den because of his faithfulness to God. Hosea suffered a heartbreaking marriage. Amos faced lies and scorn. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded for his testimony to God's truth. And we could read Hebrews 11, where a numerous other list of prophets are condemned, prophets who endured. James is saying that the prophets faced great hostility and rejection with patience. And he's saying they endured. They didn't let go of their hope. And because of that, we consider them to be blessed. This is the assessment of James and his readers, but it is also God's assessment. We can't miss the connection with what James says in chapter 1 in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed here does not mean happy. How often do you think the the prophets in Job were were experiencing the, the emotion of happiness? God doesn't promise that. Happiness is a subjective state of how we feel. This blessing is an objective judgment of what God thinks of us. Job is a classic model of suffering in the Bible, and and the Jewish readers would have very easily identified with him, and identified with him very much. He lost his wealth, his health, and all his children. His wife and his friends were against him, and when he cried out to God for answers, there was little reply. Now, Job was not our particularly good model of patience in suffering. But but I think what James is bringing out here is that he remained steadfast. He endured incredible suffering and never lost faith in God. Job held on to his hope. He never deserted the Lord. We see this in things he said, like, The Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job struggled and questioned, sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished 
in his heart. And as we consider the steadfastness of Job, we see a glimpse of God's purpose in suffering. The goal here, as James talks about, you've, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. That, that word purpose could, could be translated goal or end. The purpose that the Lord eventually brought about in Job's suffering was not a fairy tale ending in which all live happily ever after. Uh, we do know as we read the last chapter that God did bless Job more after his suffering than before. For example, he was given seven sons and three daughters, one of whom was named Kezia. And all of this blessing was certainly part of God's compassion and his mercy. But the divine purpose in Job's suffering, above all, I think, was that he would know God more fully. We read in Job 42.5, Job says to God, I had heard you, but now I see you. In his suffering, Job came to learn more about who God is. He came to see that God is compassionate and merciful. Does the suffering you're in seem meaningless? It's not. God is up to something. There are probably a lot of different things that he's seeking to do and accomplish through your pain, but you can be sure of this. You can be sure of one thing. God has placed you in the situation you are in to show you more of who he is. It's not hard to see why James directed his readers to the example of the prophets in Job. Following their example, looking at these guys, and following their example will help us patiently endure our suffering because we see what the result is. We see where this is going. We see that the end result is blessing and we know that it's worth it. We also see God's purpose to show us more of His character. In our suffering, we see more clearly God's mercy and compassion. And that encourages us to patiently endure. So, so considering this point just a bit further, I think, I think we've got to catch this. That one of the benefits of looking to the example of others is that it helps us see that our suffering isn't unique. So we're oftentimes tempted to think that our particular suffering is exceptionally difficult. We have it worse than everybody else who's suffering less. And what this does is it leads to self-pity. It leads to feeling abandoned or being jealous of others and perhaps even a desire to quit. James is reminding us here that there is a world of believers out there who are suffering far more than we are. And we need to look at them. We need to look at them for inspiration and encouragement. So, so rather than comparing ourselves with those who suffer less, we really ought to compare ourselves with those who suffer more. It's very likely that you have brothers and sisters in our church family who either are, or have suffered more than you. Get to know them better. Learn of their struggles. 
and be encouraged by how they have learned and how they are learning patience, endurance in their suffering. And there are a lot of good Christian biographies. Stories of men and women who have suffered far more than us and like the apostles in Job are examples of patient endurance. So reading these, reading good biographies will encourage our hearts. So patient endurance first anticipates Christ's return. Second, it doesn't grumble against others. Third, it looks to the examples of others. And last, it always speaks the truth. It always speaks the truth. Verse 12, James writes, Above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Swearing here means to invoke God's name as a means of guaranteeing the reliability of what a person says. And taking an oath is similar. Something one does to reinforce the truth of what he has said or to bind himself to some further course of conduct. Of course, we know of swearing in our courtrooms and the president takes the oath of office. That's not what James is talking about here. He's referring to our everyday speech. And the reason why we shouldn't swear and use oaths is that truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we don't need an oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. I don't think the above all here means that refraining from oaths is more important than waiting for the Lord's return or not grumbling, or looking to the example of others, or anything else James has said previously in this, up to this point in the book. I think most likely, above all, is a literary device meant to introduce his final remarks. Something like, finally, perhaps. As some say, that this verse may perhaps serve in some way as a bridge that connects what comes before, came before and what is to come. It's really hard to know precisely how this verse fits with the theme of patient endurance and suffering. There are those who say it has no connection. It's essentially just a random reference to the proper use of our tongue. I'm certainly not sure. I don't think we can be certain. But I'm inclined to think that this command for honest speech does indeed relate to James's call for patient endurance and suffering. Think about this with me. I, I think there's a connection, and, and I think we can see it. Pastor Miller, in an email he sent to me, on, so in Dan's words, swearing enables us to manipulate our situation to some degree by making permanent, we think, in one brief moment, that what we, what we are too impatient to let providence reveal in time. Proper suffering can be aborted by manipulative swearing. I think an example of this might be Peter's denial of Christ. Under the stress of what he saw as personal danger, he swore, I do not know the man. At times, oaths were taken to serve to secure an action by God, which in reality was simply showing impatience with God. 
We, we could look at Jephthah in Judges 11. He saw the oppression of the Israelites by the Ammonites. And rather than wait patiently for the Lord to deliver them, or even pray over this condition, he rashly swore an oath as a bargaining chip with God. And he paid for it. So persistent truth-telling with integrity, while under the pressure of suffering, requires an immense amount of patience. But Jesus is coming. And just as with grumbling, he will judge all dishonest speech. So if we are to patiently endure suffering, we must always speak the truth. We must maintain our integrity no matter what. It's the only way forward for those who live by faith in the coming judge. Like with James's reference to grumbling in verse 9, we're reminded here again, I think, of the power of our tongue and the temptation in suffering to sin with it. And as with grumbling, let's remember that dishonest speech in the midst of suffering is ultimately an issue of the heart. In this context, the youth of oaths reveals an unbelieving heart. It's evidence of a deficient faith. In God. McCartney says it well. Faith always means yes when it says yes. That is, people of faith have no need of oaths, either to give their words weight or to prompt a solution to suffering. They can wait patiently and prayerfully for the Lord and always keep their promises, knowing that God always keeps His. So in order to speak the truth in our suffering, we must maintain a heart of trust and faith in God. I suspect that somewhere in this sermon, your mind went to something in your life that is really hard. I think that probably happened unless you were asleep and missed it all. But assuming you're awake... Most of you are. Your mind probably thought of something that's hard. It probably went to an area of suffering in your life. So in your suffering, are you enduring with patience? How can you know? Or are you anticipating Christ's return? Do you find yourself grumbling against others? Are you looking to those who are patiently enduring suffering, suffering that's even greater than yours? Do you always speak the truth? Well, by God's grace, may we be people who anticipate Christ's return, longing to be in His presence where everything will be made right. May we be people who rather than turning on each other or away from each other, turn to each other in our times of suffering. May we be a people who get our eyes off of ourselves and look to others who suffer more, others who have patiently endured 
and who remind us that doing so leads to God's blessing and leads to seeing more of who God is. And may we be a people who no matter how much pressure our suffering may bring, continue to trust God's providence and persist in always speaking the truth. Father, we ask that by your grace we would hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For you have promised, you always keep your promises, you are faithful. May we not be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but may we be of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Oh, Father, please do this. Do this work through your grace and through the power of your Spirit. In Christ we ask this. Amen.